Greetings and salutations. I hope your day is both tranquil and fulfilling. I am Athanasius, and welcome back to the podcast of Boldly Immortal. Today we've got a redux, uh, an expansion on an earlier podcast, probably, I think it was the, one of the last ones I did that was actually freeform. So if you have joined more recently to the podcast, uh, welcome. I know we had quite a few listeners to the stewards episodes and had quite a bit of the audacitor stuff going on. So now I get to come back and try and express what is on my mind for a little while. But this is actually specific to a request that I received from a friend of mine about the previous episode, Do Something. This was back in January. And the end of that podcast included a thought on the pessimism that is possible by saying, well, what's the point of doing anything at all if it's all going to burn? And I responded to that one in the episode, but I'd like to expand on it further uh, as requested. There's an argument that could be made that if everything is in fact going to burn, you know, the Lord is coming back. So this is a Christian talking, so we'll, we'll contextualize it for someone who's not a Christian in a bit, but a Christian speaking saying, well, the world's going to end and everything's going to burn up. So it doesn't matter as much what you do with yourself, what you do with your time, what uh, whether it's it's wise or foolish. You know, let us eat and drink and you know, enjoy life. And as a Christian, you know that's not quite right. There's a morality that's expected of us, but there's another aspect of the freedom of the Christian that often doesn't get addressed, but is un implicitly understood by a lot of people that freedom of the Christian doesn't mean the freedom to do wickedness, but it does mean that I don't have to have the same expectations of everyday morality. And by that, I mean, there's no morality about food and drink and what you wear and who you talk to. There's a reaction against this that says, well, that was the wrong attitude. We need to actually have these expectations of what we eat and what we drink and who we talk to and what we wear, that, that we need to have more severe codes, more strict approaches to these ideas. And neither one of these polls is correct, but they're both trying to understand something that's somewhat confusing if you don't have the right terminology. And this is where, for Lutherans in particular, the concepts of law and gospel and trying to subdivide everything into one of the two categories is incredibly unhelpful. Rather, let's talk about a third idea. Now, Before we get to this idea, we're going to go back to the question for the pagan. Well, the pagans living their life thinking that nothing matters already. We live in a nihilistic time that has no eschatology. There is nothing to look forward to. This is part of the reason people are so filled with despair. There is no hope. There is no future. For a while, all we could look forward to was nuclear annihilation. That was 
reasonable expectation. And the science fiction stories gave us our alternative, positive view of the future. That we would colonize the stars, we would become a great spacefaring civilization and achieve great things and come into struggles and overcome those struggles in the same way we overcome our current struggles to get there. Now, this star, star, think Star Trek, think Star Wars, think um, 2001 A Space Odyssey. There are dreams implanted in our civilization that gave us the illusion of a future in the stars. And we don't really believe that right now. And I think that's good. We don't believe, your average person, I don't think, believes that humanity is going to be a seafaring, or excuse me, spacefaring people in the near future and that we're going to go colonize Mars and everything's going to be hunky-dory. That we actually understand a little more implicitly now the difficulties of space travel, the difficulties of living not on Earth and the barren wasteland that would welcome us if we were to leave. And the problem is that we don't have a hope for the for the present, for the for the earth, for the place we live, for our communities, for any of those things. So without a positive eschatology, the pagan is forced to look at the present as the great idolatry. The, the only thing worth living for is now, current pleasure, current convenience, and as such, we should not expect them to do anything but fulfill their hedonistic desires. The pagan has nothing better to live for than filling his stomach every single day. So giving them the idea that there is something to hope for in some ways is prerequisite. The prerequisite assumption, assertion is Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and death has been defeated. He is coming back just as he ascended to the right hand of the father to take all power and authority. He is ruling and reigning and governing all things for the good of his church, giving us times of peace and times of distress so that we may not abandon the truth, so that we may not be so discouraged by our hardships as to forget his word and his promises, but also so that we may not be so, so satisfied with our comforts as to forget our need for his mercy. This is the prerequisite. This is the world we live in. And this is what we believe as a, as a starting point, a foundation for why you should do anything good. Now, returning back to that earlier topic, what now? How should we then live? And this is not an easy thing to answer uh, if you, like I said, use the basic... Lutheran formula of law and gospel. So we've got gospel that says Jesus died for you and law that says this is what you were supposed to do. But you end with the gospel or you use the third use of the law, which is where that's that's where this comes in. Okay, let's let's not use this. Seriously, the, 
the the Bible doesn't have these strict categorizations the way that we do. What the Bible has is an, an, an entire class of thinking that makes this so much simpler, and that is wisdom. I believe I've talked about this on the podcast before, but wisdom is the way to circumvent questions of the so-called third use of the law. What should the Christian do with his life? What is it that we are to pursue in our everyday everyday lives? We should pursue wisdom. Why not? Well, that's the question we're going to answer today. Or pursue today. Explore today. If you've got your Bible, I'm actually going to use the Bible today. I'm going to let you follow along. I'll give you a chance. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we'll start. And... We'll, we'll go from there. This is what I hinted at. This is what I was talking about with the previous episode. Knowing that Christ will return to judge the world, knowing that he will return and the whole thing's going to burn, everything, no matter what we do, you could build the greatest empire the world has ever seen, and if the Lord tarries, it will dis- be completely destroyed and perhaps forgotten in the dust. No one will know. That's, that's not out of the question. That's not beyond our comprehension. This is why we have dystopic stories. This is why we can imagine our own civilization falling into chaos. That sometime in 10,000, 20,000 years, should the Lord tarry, what will remain of us, of this conversation, of anything we build, what will remain of our people, of our of the land in which we dwell, of the churches that we attend, that we pray in, that we pray for, that we pray among, because the church is the people. Will we be faithful? Will we be like the churches in Asia Minor that have held out, or will we be like other places that have that have fallen? Um, so we'll start in Second Corinthians three. Paul talks about the the feeding of the people. Um, I brothers could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? So, for context, Corinth was a place of incredible sexual licentiousness. Uh, This was practically a, a worship. Uh, and and Corinth was a, a an especially prosperous place because of this this activity um, that was going on ritual pagan worship and uh, sexual in nature and this is where Paul has people who hear the word what a what a marvelous thing but he's got some some struggles he's working through with them this is his second letter. 
to the Corinthians and he's telling them, I couldn't give you everything because you didn't get the beginning stuff. And so until you understand the fundamental essential principles of Christianity, you are not ready for the more esoteric or complex or more enlightened, perhaps, theology. What, you read through the epistle to the Hebrews, and he talks about Melchizedek, and that is just, wow, crazy stuff. Because he's trying to draw on the Old Testament and explain how it all points forward to Christ and David pointing, uh, David seeing that and pointing forward to Christ as the one who would sit on his throne to whom he himself would be subservient. Wow. What an idea. But Paul's point here is that the Corinthians aren't ready for that. That's, that's not what they're ready for because they're picking fights with each other. And so he didn't give it to them. He's given them other other things. He's given them the, the Christian doctrine, the truth that I mentioned earlier. Jesus Christ died and rose again. He's He ascended into heaven and he's coming back in the same way. There you go. Continuing with the text from verse 4. For when one says, I am of Paul and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos, but ministers, through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And that's what he's going to hit on next. That's what Paul's going to strike on next, this reward. But first, he has to say that it's not a matter of picking sectarian fights. This is why the name Lutheran sucks. Because, oh, I'm of Luther. What does that mean? It, it means the Lutheran confessions more than Luther himself. Now, Luther had great insight, and he understood that simply returning to the scriptures was better than trusting some long chain of tradition that was at that point opposed to the very scriptures. So Luther's boldness in looking into the scriptures to see the doctrines of Christianity clearly put forth and standing in scripture against even the threat of death. Luther's conviction in doing that is something that I pray for. Luther's zeal in and his love for the scriptures are something that is admirable. But who is Luther? Who is Paul? Who's Paul? Paul's an apostle. Yeah, who's Paul? That's what Paul says. I'm nobody. I'm not the person you should be dividing over. And again, this is why, why am I a Lutheran? Because it means that I'm someone who believes that within the scriptures, all of the answers to all the theological questions are present, that we don't need the tradition if we root ourselves in the sacred scriptures. And Paul's writings are among them. 
And so that's why St. Paul is someone. But why are they among them? Because, well, he saw the Lord. He spoke with him. Because he was sent by the Lord to preach to the Gentiles. That's me. But he himself says, that's not what matters. What matters is the one who gives increase. The one who makes us to flourish. God. And then... He says, each one will receive his own reward according to his labor. Continuing with verse 9, this is where we're getting into the meat of the question. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no one for, excuse me, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Unpacking that then for a moment, we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, and then he shifts away from the analogy of the field and the sower. This is something Jesus uses a lot, the sower, and he, he changes it because he's going to talk about others going into that field and also continuing the work and, and caring for the vineyard. That, that's another analogy from the Old Testament that Jesus uses, uh, having someone tending the vineyard. In this case, Paul switches to the analogy of construction. And this is also an Old Testament image, uh, Psalm 118 the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So here we go. Paul is going to expand on this idea and show how one can build the building of the self. How do you build yourself? Who's building it first? God. And then Paul says he's a fellow worker. He also says Apollos. Apollos, who's a preacher, he's a, a layman, he's a Gentile who is simply preaching the gospel. He's sharing it. And there are times where he has to be corrected by Aquila and Priscilla. But broadly speaking, he seems to be on the straight and narrow. And he accepts this correction and moves, goes forward in joy. So Paul's, Paul's talking about this man as his fellow worker, fellow builder, underneath the chief, the chief, which is Christ. And then he says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. And then he explains this foundation is Christ in verse 11. So Paul says, I gave you Christ. I gave you faith. I gave you hope to touch back on our earlier conversation, our earlier point that he gave us, he gave us a reason to believe. He gave us a new eschatology, a new vision of who we are. And who's he? Jesus. The one who's working through Paul. The one who Paul is underneath. But Paul specifically was appointed to the Corinthians as the one who gave them this foundation, who laid it in their midst because by his words, their faith was kindled. What a wonderful, beautiful thing. And so he has a right to some honor 
in the same way that well, whoever gave you the gospel, was it your parents? Was it your first pastor? Did you come into the faith later? Who preached you the gospel? Remember them. Honor them. Pray for them. And love them. Because they gave you this foundation. The only foundation that matters. Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation. There is no other solid rock that can withstand the storms of life. That can withstand the raging of the wind and the waves. The chaos unleashed. The dragon chained and running amok until his time is up. Jesus Christ is the only foundation. So, when others build on it, what is that building? What does that, what does that mean? We'll, we'll get into that. Let each one take heed how he builds on it. So, the building that happens upon the foundation matters. Each one is building up on that foundation. And then, then he goes here in verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So he's talking about works. He's talking about what you do. He's talking about what you believe about the world, about your neighbor. Because the foundation is Christ, faith in Christ. And then, how do you build up on that? How do you build up beyond, uh, upon this foundation? What, what's your theology of baptism? What's your theology of the Lord's Supper? Right. And if you build with the truth, if you build with the scriptural doctrines, you're not going to lose that when you get to paradise. You're not going to lose any, any of your doctrinal convictions because you'll already have the, it properly understood. So when Christ returns, those who have felicitous inconsistencies, faithful inconsistencies, uh, who are Christians who believe in Jesus, but they don't have the doctrine quite right. Good faithful Baptists, good faithful Calvinists, good faithful evangelicals and Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, etc. A good faithful person who looks to Christ as their Savior, who trusts in him to deliver them. They will lose the theological convictions they have that are not correct. But whatever they have that is correct will be revealed by fire, tested, and, verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. But he's not just talking about theology. He is talking about theology. This is something we should understand, that we ought to build with proper theology, but he's also talking about what you do with your life. Now that you have the foundation of Jesus Christ, now that the instability 
of trying to found your own day-to-day life on your own confidence in yourself that now that that's been washed away and you're building on the foundation of christ build build well do something good what else are you supposed to do with your time what do you think that paradise is going to be god gave man a garden he didn't give him nothing to do he gave him plenty to do to tend the garden now what does that mean what does that look like in a perfect world i can't imagine whenever i get outside and do some gardening i i feel it though that the plants are simply doing what they would do they're not sinning they're not in error i'm simply choosing what type of plant I want in any particular spot. And if this plant, maybe it's not a weed, maybe it's a flower that doesn't belong in the rock bed. And so I need to remove it from the rock bed so that the rock bed can be the rock bed and that the flower may flourish as opposed to coming up and dying. And then the next one comes up and dies. You know, would that have not happened before the fall? Yeah. Oh goodness. I don't know. But there's not a reason that I have seen to believe that there will be no vocations in paradise. And in fact, given that the disciples, the apostles, are on the thrones to judge Israel, to judge the church, to judge the people of God, that seems to imply that there will be things to do. What those things are beats me, but it's going to be wonderful. So here on earth, why wouldn't we do the same thing? Why wouldn't we act in love towards the neighbor and build one another up, do good? Because if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. So the one who understands this and who does good to the neighbor will not go unrewarded by the Lord at his return. doesn't mean higher levels of bliss. It just means... You did good, son. Well done, good and faithful servant. It doesn't mean the other guy who comes to faith at the end of his life and only just barely does it and doesn't really get to express in his, in his actions the faith that he has come into, that has been given to him. It doesn't mean that that man is going to have an inferior experience in paradise. He's just got a different story to tell. He's just got a different insight to share. And God will use that for good. And then Paul goes on to uh, warn them, uh, verse beginning with verse 16, do you not know that you are t- the temple of God? Y'all are the temple of God. God dwells in y'all. And that the Holy that the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. And you speak the words of Scripture. Yeah, he's, he's here. Two or three are gathered. There is he. Jesus. So, not just that, but proper sacramental theology. He's there. This is a Saturday today. He's there tomorrow. He's there today. If you ask your pastor, he's there, right there. Words of institution. This is my body. Hoc est meum corpum. 
That's the Latin, not the Greek. I'll learn the Greek eventually. God is inside of you. God is with you in your congregation, in your assembly. He's also there with you personally. This is a beautiful mystery. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. Okay, there, there's some good law there. Be warned. God is not somebody to toy with. For the temple of God is holy, which you are. So, do righteousness. Don't, don't defile the temple of God. Don't, well, don't what? Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. That's written in Job. In your footnotes, you can see that. And again, this is in the Psalms, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Jesus Christ knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. They're nothing. Therefore, let you, no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether a Paul or Paulus or Cephas, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you, Christ's and Christ, God's. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He continues, this is just an excellent, excellent book, so we could just keep going with that, but I actually didn't want to focus on that. That wasn't the main idea. It's amazing. This is a beautiful thing, that the mysteries, oh, the mysteries of, of life that we so eagerly wish to understand by our own wisdom that we want to figure out. They're not given to us in our own worldly wisdom, but they're given to us through Christ. Those things which we need to understand, those things which are for us, we only have in Christ. The wisdom of this age is folly, it is passing, it is worthless. So what are you doing? Whose wisdom are you pursuing? Because Paul doesn't say, become a fool because being a fool is great. He says, let him become a fool that he may become wise, that he may be wise. So, we are to be wise. And the wisdom is there. What is the wisdom of God? And it's Christ, and we see it in Christ, the foolishness of God, and the wisdom of God, and majesty beyond what we can comprehend. And for our daily lives, he has given us insight, given us wisdom, given us good to pursue. There's one other major section that really strikes this, I think, better and really must be understood within the context of Christ 
and not simply as apathy. But if you understand it with this lens that it's all going to burn, but there is good to be done, then you'll find the book is a beautiful book, Ecclesiastes. And there's so much to talk about here, and I do hope to come back to this one and strike it more thoroughly. But for now, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vapor of vapors, says the preacher. Vapor of vapors, all is vapor. Passing, shadow, mist, mist. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? A generation passes away and a generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done and nothing is new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man, by which they may be exercised. <laughs> I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is mist, all is vapor, all is vanity, and grasping for the wind. The crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I've, I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness, and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was mist and vanity and vapor. I said of laughter, Madness, and of mirth, What does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. 
I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house, as I had great possessions of herds and flocks, greater possessions than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed, all was vanity, I was vapor, mist, and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Then I turned myself to consider wisdom, and madness, and folly, for what can the man do who succeeds the king? only what he has already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, This also is vanity, is mist. For there is no remembrance of the wise than the f of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? As the fool. Therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled, and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vapor, is mist, it's, it's vanity. Therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. Yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is mist, vapor, vanity, and a great evil. For what has man for all his labor, and for the striving of his heart, with which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful, and his work is burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. Nothing is better for a man than that he should 
eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat, or who can have enjoyment more than I? Excuse me, um, that's the, King, the New King James which I'm reading, but the Septuagint translation makes a little more sense. For who can eat, or who can have enjoyment without him, without God? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give it to who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. This isn't a book about just how everyone's going to die. Hidden within it, at different points, you can see that nonetheless Solomon recognizes and highlights how wisdom is better. But he recognizes the struggle that if, if we're just going to die, why should I do anything at all? And it's going to go to somebody else. Everything that I've worked for, everything I've done, everything I've ever said is meaningless. Vapor. It's, it's mist and shadow. It's passing away. Solomon knows this. We still know who he is. And he understands that he's going to pass out of thought. His words will be forgotten. The word of the Lord endures forever. So in this case, the reason that Solomon's words endured is because the Holy Spirit wanted them to endure for you. For you to know that anything you're trying to get out of life, anything you do because you are looking forward to being rewarded for it in heaven, is vapor. It is vanity. That is not a good reason to pursue righteousness, to pursue good. Pursue it because it is good. Because that is what God has given you to do. What more is there? What more is there in life than to eat and drink and delight in the good work that God has given you to do. And when you want to know what is the right thing to do at any time, the Proverbs are an excellent guide for this. And if you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus gives you the same things. And Jesus tells you not to worry. In the Sermon on the Mount, he, he talks about even the birds of the air are cared for by your Father in heaven, that he feeds them. He clothes the lilies of the field which are here today and gone tomorrow. And he gives them what beauteous raiment. And so even though the thing is passing, that doesn't mean it doesn't have good to do. It doesn't mean that God's not going to take care of you. And it doesn't mean that you can't do things 
that bless your neighbor, that bless those around you, that redound to your eternal benefit. As children's children, Lord willing, come and can speak with you in the resurrection of what you did with your life. and the, Perhaps someone who is tangentially affected, you, you will meet one day a Christian or someone who comes to faith. But even if not, even if it is all just going to burn, do good because wisdom exceeds folly. Because the good comes from the Lord. Because he gave you your vocation and he gave you your neighbor. And he knows what he's doing. Because life is good. And even though it is filled with trouble and woe, as the preacher continues with in Ecclesiastes, the, the, the woe of life and the pain and the unfairness, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Do good. And stop trying to achieve greatness. Stop trying to be permanent to endure, to be sure of your footing. Trust your Heavenly Father to grant you what you need and see that your Heavenly Father has given you your neighbor so that you might be the way in which he feeds them, might be the way in which he makes sure their roads are taken care of, that their health care needs are taken care of, that their transportation needs are taken care of, that their back-end communications for their website are taken care of, that their clothing, their food, their well-being, their alcohol, the simple pleasures of life. God loves life. He does not desire the death of the sinner. He delights to see his children prosper. So hold the true doctrine that will not pass away, that will be proven to be glorious gold on the day of Christ's return. Hold fast to it. Cling to it. Meditate on it. Share it. And then see those whom God has given you, who he gave you for their good, and do good. good stuff in Ecclesiastes. Let me know if you want to hear more. <laughs>